It's Friday, June 4th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. JBS, the second largest producer of beef, pork, and chicken, is now fully operational after being the victim of a ransomware attack by a Russian group named R-Evil. Luckily, the disruption to the food supply will be minimal, but workers going back had to put in some good old-fashioned manual labor in as many of the operations at these plants are automated. Elizabeth Elkin, agriculture reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for the latest ransomware attack on critical sectors of the U.S. economy. Next, as many companies are debating what the road back to the office will look like, they better be prepared to make remote work a part of the equation. A recent survey showed that almost 40% of workers would quit a job if their employers were not flexible about working remotely. Anders Mellon, reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for how important remote work has become over the course of the pandemic. Finally, a lot of people have been lucky enough to hit it big in the markets and come out with extra money. Whether it was company shares, retail, or crypto investing, some are stressed with what to do with all that sudden money. A couple of things to do immediately would be to let your feelings calm down from all that cash and set money aside for taxes. Julia Carpenter, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for tips on how to manage that stress. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. JBS notified the administration that the ransom demand came from a criminal organization likely based in Russia. So the White House is engaging directly with the Russian government on this matter and delivering the message that responsible states do not harbor ransomware criminals. Joining us now is Elizabeth Elkin, agriculture reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. This past week, JBS, the second largest producer of beef, pork, and chicken in the U.S., was experiencing uh, some trouble due to a ransomware attack. They are just about back in operation now, uh, ramping up slowly. We'll talk a little bit more about the hack in a minute, but workers that were starting to go back right now had to go a little old school with the manual labor. These companies, these uh, plants like this, run heavily on automation for both food and worker safety reasons. Computers collect data through multiple stages of the production process, and a lot of it, as I mentioned, is automated. So workers going back had to go with a a more manual approach when they went back. So tell me a little bit about that first. At least some plants, we've heard, were doing operations manually. And so that means that logistical labor like packaging and accounting for cattle could be a challenge. One union rep told me that he'd compare it to driving manual while you're ramping up to get the car back into full auto, right? Everything from like knife sharpening to production line speed all rely heavily on automation for their controls. And so with a cyber attack like this, like that can be a huge challenge. And, you know, we saw all of their beef plants in the U.S. had to shut down on Tuesday, which is just huge, right? Like you said, I mean, they're a huge producer of meat, uh, the largest meat producer globally, and they supply almost a quarter of American beef supplies. So that is, I mean, it's huge and it's a lot of work. Some of the workers returning were, you know, there was concerns about meat sitting in freezers for too long. It could render it inedible. So we don't know exactly what has been lost in the last few days that they had been closed. If you think about this on a a larger scale, right, we had huge closures during COVID. And if you compare that to this, this is a pretty small blip, right, compared to like COVID closures, but it still was it was big and it's, you know, big that this humongous meat company had to shut down over this. 
a little bit more on the actual ransomware attack itself. The FBI has said that it's been attributed to a Russian-speaking gang, our evil, a <laughs> pretty, <laughs> pretty uh, <laughs> sinister name there. Um, but what, what else do we know about this? Uh, we don't know if JBS paid a ransom, how much that might have been. Uh, you know, what do we know about that attack specifically? We don't know a lot, which has been, I think, frustrating for a lot of people. JBS has been pretty quiet about updates, and we again asked them for any updates that they might have today and haven't received any. We're, we're in a waiting game. We, Like you said, we don't know whether they paid the ransom. Uh, we don't know really any details about that beyond just that the FBI has come out and confirmed that it was this Russia-linked group. I think in this case, some of the backup servers were not affected. That's kind of how they were able to get back up so quickly, mm-hmm. thankfully, right? I think some reporting I saw said back in October, there was a representative from this gang, R. Evil, who said that the agriculture sector would now be a main target for them. And obviously, we see that now. And and we saw with the Colonial Pipeline hack, bigger infrastructure areas are being targets for this ransomware attacks. And that's the concern that that attacks like this will grow. And really, the cybersecurity setup in a lot of these companies just isn't up to protecting themselves from these attacks. This really upended the agriculture markets. And it did raise a lot of concerns about food security. We're seeing, like you said, increasing targets of this critical infrastructure. And yeah, wholesale meat prices are at the highest level since the early days of the pandemic last year. Cattle futures swung wildly. This is really a concern. And the White House did come out and say that corporate leaders should immediately develop plans to try to counter these attacks, like offline backups to uh, critical information. And there are no Department of Agriculture cybersecurity regulations or requirements for meat packers, we've discovered. What are we hearing from employees? I know JBS said that there wasn't evidence that uh, any customers or supplier or worker data had been leaked, but that's always the concern when uh, servers and, and things are attacked like that. Absolutely. And we've been hearing a lot from employees that they are really concerned about this. And I mean, if you were an employee there, I'm sure that this would be a concern for you, too. We're hearing, you know, about some of those challenges that people have faced as they go in. Like we discussed, some of the things that are having to be done manually that usually wouldn't be. Now, most of the plants are back up and running uh, pretty good capacity. And I know that we have been in touch with like unions uh, looking at, you know, as they're trying to get people back in the door here, like, what does that look like? There's some concern, but also pretty much everyone who I've spoken with thinks that, you know, JBS will be able to come back up to full capacity of doing all of the things that they usually do. And other companies have kind of been encouraged to uh, come in and help fill this gap. So you're seeing some of that too. Elizabeth Elkin, agriculture reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. We spoke to experts that say that there's reason to believe that this might continue into the summer and into the fall as well of people shifting jobs because there's a lot of preferences to working from home for many people. And some companies are willing to grant those additional flexibility and those that don't might have a hard time keeping their people. Joining us now is Anders Mellon, reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Anders. Glad to be with you. You know, one of the big conversations that a lot of companies are having right now revolves around 
getting workers back into the office or what they're going to do, uh, letting them work remotely, uh, either some days completely. You know, th- that's what the discussions are right now is people are starting to get back to work. Companies are trying to get back to normal. But for some employees that have been doing remote work throughout the pandemic, it's become an important part of their lives and they don't want to let it go to the point that some are quitting their jobs instead of giving that up. Anders, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing with this. Like you said, last year we went through essentially this grand national experiment of making millions of white-collar workers work from home or work from somewhere else than than their office. And, you know, the economy is still humming. Companies are still making money and and productivity is still high. So people are looking at that and, and saying, why can't we keep working from home also now? And that's happening to an extent that some of the folks that we talked to, they have simply just left their old jobs and found new ones that would allow them to work remotely full time. And we spoke to experts that say that there's reason to believe that this might continue into the summer and into the fall as well of people shifting jobs because there's a lot of preferences to working from home for many people. And some companies are willing to grant those additional flexibility and those that don't might have a hard time keeping their people. Some of the polls that just came out, I think it was about 40% that said they'd quit if they couldn't continue to work remotely. And the top things that they say why they want to keep doing that is lack of commute and the cost savings associated with all that. Nobody, I think, really wants to go back to the commute that we had pre-pandemic, whether that was on trains or, or whether that was driving. One important factor that also plays into this is the relative strength in, in the labor market in terms of for the employees. There was not a ton of movement throughout the pandemic because of the uncertainty. So now you have a bunch of pent up job moves that probably would have happened last year, but that is now instead coming. And then you add that to the trend that we're starting to see the beginnings of of people just wanting to keep that remote work. And given that it is a good job market for job seekers, there's reason to believe that it might actually be to their advantage also continuing this year uh, and that companies might actually just have to start adapting or risk to see some of their people leaving. Some of the workers you spoke to also said that they feel that managers, you know, employers just want tighter controls over the workforce as well. But what is, uh, what have corporate leadership, what have uh, business owners, what have they said about this? How do they feel about having workers work remotely? So it's been a bit of a mixed message. Bloomberg being largely focused on the financial industry, there we've seen some CEOs coming out quite strongly advocating for an in-office culture. Jamie Dimon of JP Morgan said a few weeks ago that Remote work does not work for those who want to hustle and said, if you don't want to commute, then, you know, too bad. That's just how it's going to be. Whereas in other sectors, including tech, remote work and then flexibility has been, you know, a thing for years. And over there, more corporate leaders have already last year came out very early and said, we're just going to be fully remote or we're going to give workers the opportunity to choose how they want to do. So it's it's a mixed landscape. And I think also at this point, many corporate leaders are kind of waiting to see what everybody else is doing and also particularly waiting to see what their rivals are going to do and may have to adapt accordingly in order to stay competitive and make sure that people don't defect to rivals. So it's still a bit of a waiting game. And I think a lot of it is going to shake out over the summer and particularly as we head into the fall when summer vacations are over and people come back from where they might hang out during the warmer months and 
callbacks to offices might actually be in full swing, so to say, right. towards the end of the summer. Even on this kind of hybrid model and the way it is, everybody's kind of fallen along the same lines, at least from what I've seen, you know, generally, that the magic number is probably three days in the office, two days working from home. If they're going with that model, you know, staying away from the complete 100% remote working model, that seems to be agreeable by both sides in a lot of cases. It does. Yeah, that's a survey that we cited by PwC. By It looked at U.S. executives and those bosses said precisely that three days a week was kind of the magic number. I think the larger theme that we heard and saw in the conversations that we had was just that people feel like last year it worked and when companies were forced to empower workers to work from home and trust them that things would get done, it largely worked. And people just don't really want to give up the flexibility and, and perhaps having the option to work from home and, and have it not necessarily be a big deal or look down upon or have to ask for permission. So I think just the sense of, of freedom and then greater control is really what people would like and, and not necessarily just a certain number of days in the office. Anders Mellon, reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. There's a responsibility to managing that money as well. I often spoke with people who said, you know, this is my shot. This is money I never expected to have. This is money I never expected to have this soon. I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to see it disappear. Joining us now is Julia Carpenter, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Julia. Thank you so much for having me. wanted to talk about people coming into a lot of money recently, especially when it comes to uh, the stock market. You know, a lot of people were investing in their stocks. They saw their portfolios go up. A lot of people were investing in cryptocurrency. I know that was a, a huge one throughout the pandemic and, and some of these other meme stocks, things like AMC, which is uh, doing really well right now. GameStop was hot for a moment, you know, right. but a lot of people came into a lot of money and you don't know what to do with it sometimes. So uh, you spoke to a lot of experts on, on what to do. One of the first things they say is, you know, if you're coming into a lot of money, put your long-term goals in focus so you know what you're going to end up doing with all of it. Absolutely. I think something a lot of people have seen in the last year is because the market's been so volatile, especially. People want to have a plan for where their money goes and how they'll be using it for the future. Whether they leave that money somewhere, whether they take it out, whether they have an immediate goal that they're going to be planning for, something that gives a bit more of a focus and a direction. And taking a step back real quick on that, one of the experts you spoke to said people that benefited from the market surge fall into three categories. Can you explain that real quick? So this is Sahil. Uh, he's the founder of Myra Wealth. They're a personal finance fintech company. He was talking specifically about three categories of people who benefited from this huge surge. And, and we're seeing that in people who were given company shares as compensation, shares in their company, and then they saw those shares boom. Or people who all of a sudden started retail investing last year. We saw a lot of a lot more participation in the market for people who were amateurs or hadn't been investing previously. And there's also people who've invested in cryptocurrency. And if you invested early on in cryptocurrency, the surge we've seen in coins like Bitcoin this year has really benefited those early investors. And a lot of them are very young, between the ages of 25 and 45. And, and that's kind of what the purpose of this article was that you wrote is you're young and you come into this stuff, you know, you want to be smart about it. You don't want to waste it. Uh, you don't know if you should continue to invest or get out. You know, so all of these questions kind of come once you start hitting it big. 
there's definitely an anxiety to it, I think, you know, especially in the, in the midst of this last year, we've seen this K-shaped recovery benefit some people, hurt other people. We're definitely not out of the woods yet, even though we have this successful vaccine rollout continuing. So there's some anxiety from people who say, wait, 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 this happened too quickly, or I wasn't expecting it this much. There's a responsibility to managing that money as well. I also spoke with people who said, you know, this is my shot. This is money I never expected to have. This is money I never expected to have this soon. I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to see it disappear. Taxes. Taxes is such an important component to this. And, you know, the experts say you should start setting aside money for that immediately. That's something that has to be one of the first lines of action, because especially we've, we've now seen that the, this last tax season passed, but especially for people who were trading in the last year or maybe had never traded previously, they're going to be unfamiliar with things like the capital gains tax. They're not going to understand how the profits on these assets, you know, how long they've had them, at what rates they're taxed, how all of that comes together. So something, especially with cryptocurrency that people recommend is that you go ahead and set aside the money on the front end so that when your tax bill comes, You're not going to be shocked. You're not going to be surprised. You won't have to borrow from other parts of your portfolio. You'll be able to handle it and try to minimize it for the next year. Even paying quarterly, they said, might be smart. That way you just get ahead of it and you don't have to do it all at once at the end. Multiple advisors I spoke to said you might even have to pay quarterly. It might be something that's mandatory. It depends on your own personal situation. But paying quarterly also allows you to not find yourself with a huge bill at the end of the year. You're able to keep that in mind and handle it as it comes. One of the next steps uh, after preparing for your taxes and everything is to start uh, handling those immediate needs. So pay off those big things, your mortgage, your car, other debt. That way, you know, you have a little bit less money to play with, but you know you don't have those other worries lingering around. And this is something that I think actually comes pretty naturally to people. The tax stuff is confusing for people. Thinking long-term can be scary for people. But thinking immediately, understanding that, for example, you could wipe out your student loan or you could prepay rent was another suggestion or all of a sudden own your home outright. These are things that handling them immediately, thinking of them as some of the more pressing needs actually gives you way more flexibility and freedom to tackle the other things on the list. One of these tips that is so important is seeking advice in the right places. You know, for a lot of people that were at home during the pandemic and just kind of investing their money, playing a little bit, uh, so to speak, right? Investing in cryptocurrency as volatile as it is. And, you know, you kind of hit it big with certain things. You know, maybe you were doing it by yourself. Maybe you didn't have any financial assistance advice, at least going on at that time. But if you do come into money, it's important to get the right kind of advice. You know, my wife was playing some of these stocks during it and she'd ask me a question. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing with this. You know? <laughs> so, so making sure you're asking, making sure you're asking the right type of questions and advice from people is important. Right. You know, I spoke with one advisor who joked that these personal finance Slack channels that pop up in different company workspaces are the bane of her existence because it's so much chatter. You know, people are just throwing tips out, linking to things. You don't know if their experience is, is rooted in anything related to your experience. You don't know if their advice is valid or where, where it's coming from. So finding someone that you can talk to, that you can ask the quote unquote stupid questions of, that you can trust will be acting in your best interest is absolutely key. Julia Carpenter, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment. Give us a rating. 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.